Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And on the podcast today, we'd like to talk to you about a very hot topic in emergency medicine. We'd like to talk about looking after the patient with sepsis. So sepsis is really in the news at the moment. We've had lots and lots of strategies in the UK, really taught from medical school upwards around sepsis 6 and uh, SERS criteria and identifying sepsis. And of late, we've had some really incredible trials from around the world looking at the management of sepsis, particularly in the intensive care unit. So it's a really hot topic. It's really interesting. And there's from an emergency department perspective, there's a real interest in this because septic patients represent a group where we can make a difference. So these are people who come in potentially unwell. And if we do the right things, they get better. If we do the wrong things or we miss things out, it sometimes doesn't go so well. And over the past year or two, it seems to us that sepsis has become quite complicated. So we're going to try and bring it back to the simple things that we need to do. We don't want to discourage you from listening to all those other podcasts. They're great. And we really, really enjoy listening to them and find them really useful. But today it's about the simple things that you and I can do in the emergency department when the patient arrives to give them a better chance of recovering from their illness. So Simon, let's imagine a case. It's the weekend. It's late in the evening. Majors is really busy and you get a pre-alert from the ambulance crew for a septic patient. They're coming in in 10 minutes time with a 50 year old man who's had a recent history of a cough and he's got a temperature of 39. He has a pulse rate of 120. They've started giving him some fluid. What's the thought process you go through when you're presented with a patient like that? We're increasingly seeing this in the UK. A lot of the ambulance services, if not all of them now, have sepsis screening tools to alert the emergency department these patients are coming in. Now, those tools are fairly broad. They use criteria like temperature and an apparent focus of infection, a heart rate or respiratory rate raised or any confusion. And they're, they're reasonably good. They're not terribly specific. So they do identify a large group of patients who might be septic. The key for me, if you get one of those calls, is to take it seriously, to prepare an area to receive the patient, to get the things together that you might need to do to treat the patient, so oxygen, fluids, but get prepared to receive that patient. Make sure they're going to have an early assessment by somebody who knows what they're doing when they get to the ED. And we need to get back to the common sense approach. So these patients will often look ill. And if a patient looks ill, it usually means they are. So trust in your ambulance crew. They'll be very experienced. And if they're concerned about that, the patient, then take that concern seriously. Now, they arrive in the recess room. They're obviously a bit short of breath. Simon, what's your first steps when you've got a patient who arrives in the department like that? So as we've said in podcasts before, and particularly in the induction podcast, go for the simple stuff first. So ambulance will come in and you'll be usually receiving a patient like this have been pre-alerted with members of the nursing team and the medical team together. So you can do what we call concurrent activity. Whilst you're taking the handover or an initial handover from the paramedics, you can get the patient onto oxygen. You can make sure that they've got some monitoring on. You can start getting some observations. Now, I always think it's quite difficult to do things and listen at the same time. It's really important that you get a good handover from the paramedics. What I tend to do is get a very limited piece of information from them whilst and then get some observations, find out where we are from an ABC perspective from the patient and then keep the paramedics there and then go back to them and get more information. I cannot stress enough how important it is to get a good handover from the paramedics, have a look at the ambulance sheet, see what their observations were at the scene. There's a wealth of information in there which is often missed. And Simon and I, we've both done some pre-hospital care and you do learn an awful lot about the patient from seeing their home environment, from seeing where they are, what they're like when you first arrive. Because often by the time they've had some oxygen maybe put on by the ambulance crew, the patient who, when they arrived was an extremist, might look a bit better. It's a really well-made point. Always, whether a septic patient or just an unwell patient, listen to that handover from the ambulance crew really carefully and take it really seriously. 
Now, Simon, it seems to me that because of the attention on sepsis, this chap might just get broad spectrum antibiotics before we've even spoken to him. But I think that's something we'd like to think about a little bit more. Yeah. So again, let's think about the basics. So most of these patients, if not all of them, will get um, put on supplementary oxygen. Don't worry about COPD at this stage and CO2 retention. Get them on the oxygen early. You can always adjust that later. They'll almost all, in fact, they should all get intravenous access and get some fluids going. Choice of fluids, Ian? Well, I think the more we know about fluids, the more we think it probably doesn't matter that much. They just need some fluid and they need it fairly fast. Yeah, so crystalloid, we use Hartman's, other people use saline. I think the evidence is pretty clear that we don't know at the moment. So give them something wet and get some bloods off. Now, there's a bit of controversy about which bloods you should get off at this stage. But for us, if anybody who looks sick in the recess room, we're going to do our standard, you know, full blood count tube, use an ease tube, a glucose tube. We'll get a clotting in most of our severely septic patients and we'll get a venous blood gas early. And then blood cultures. Now, blood cultures are a little bit controversial for some people. It can take a bit of time, but it is important to get an early blood culture if you can. And remember that blood tests, although important, they're not going to make the patient feel better. So although they need doing early on, still prioritise those things that, that we've said in other podcasts that will make the patient feel better. Give them some oxygen, the IV fluids that we've talked about. Sometimes these patients will have pain. Never forget to give them analgesia. And I think we then come down to this idea of antibiotics. Now, there's a big push in the UK at the moment that antibiotics have to go in early and they have to go in fast and they have to be broad spectrum. And if you don't, somebody will tell you off. And I think in the US, it's even a standard of care where if you don't get antibiotics within a certain time frame, you don't get paid for looking after the patient. Now, I think that's a little tricky at the moment because as Merv Singer will say, and he did on the excellent podcast he did with Scott Weingart on MCRIT, there isn't a huge amount of evidence that early antibiotics make a big difference. And for me, it's about getting the right antibiotic. So now is the time when you need to just take a step back from that initial flurry of activity and ask the patient some questions about what is actually wrong with them and focus down on where the source of this infection might be. I completely agree. The time it's going to take you to make a more informed decision about which antibiotics to give a patient is probably only in the early stages about 10 minutes. So to examine the patient, to take a history, to find out where the likely source is. And once you've got a likely source, you can then look at your local microbiology guidelines to find out what the appropriate antibiotic is. The wider point here is that we as clinicians have a responsibility for antibiotic stewardship. We've got major, major problems internationally with resistance, and we can help that by giving the right type of antibiotics and not just give augmenting to everybody, which is lazy and bad medicine. There are also harms associated with antibiotics. Again, if you listen back to our podcast on the numbers needed to treat and the numbers needed to harm, antibiotics are not without their side effects. So you do need to double check you're getting the right treatment that's going to give the patient benefit. I remember really well, I've had only a couple of times, luckily for me in my life, when I've been actually properly ill and I haven't just been struggling with man flu. But one time I had what turned out to be viral meningitis and I went into hospital and I I wasn't very well. And I remember being given a broad spectrum antibiotic and it gave me excruciating abdominal pain such that the clinician I was with thought I had some sort of abdominal catastrophe going on because it was really sore. Now, Simon would probably tell you that's because I'm a bit of a wimp, but it does remind me that antibiotics have side effects just like every other treatment we give. So be careful and thoughtful. And these are not difficult questions. These are the questions that your family would ask if you told them you weren't feeling well. Have you got a cough? Is it hurting when you go to the loo? Have you got pain in your tummy? All of the really simple stuff that we get taught on day one at medical school. 
Get back to that in the recess room because that's really going to help. And that's why we place such an emphasis on it in teaching and in our learning. So those early indicators for antibiotics are fine. We will, of course, get more information as time passes. So most of these patients will get a chest x-ray. You'll probably culture their urine. Eventually, you might get blood cultures back. But from the ED perspective, that's never going to be useful. That's a test which is going to be useful when the patient hits the ward. We can do point-of-care ultrasound and we can look for sources then if you have those skills. What we're getting at here is try and make a focus decision about what you use. So Ian, that's a quite an easy approach in some ways. If you've been pre-alerted for a patient with sepsis and they're obviously sick, so the ambulance service have picked them up and they've come in. It's like many things. Patients which are pre-alerted, they're actually quite simple. The ones I worry about and the ones I find more tricky are the walk-in patients or the patients who've not triggered with the paramedics to be severely unwell but who've got early sepsis or difficult to identify sepsis, who may be in the minor's end or maybe in the major's end of your department. Well, you're right in that we know that we are all biased individuals. Now, that isn't a criticism, but that's just human nature. So if a patient walks in, comes through triage, and the triage nurse, through their assessment at that time, puts the patient into what we would call in the UK the minor stream because they seem fine, the way you approach that patient is very different to how you approach them if the triage nurse had put them into recess. So as we, again, have said on previous podcasts, be aware of your own biases. Be aware of how you think. If you're in minors and you've had a steady stream of ankle sprains coming into you and it's just become quick, 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 but something doesn't fit, the pattern doesn't fit, be more alert and ask more questions. And so with these patients, often they've chosen to come to the emergency department for a reason. And one of the things I always do and I talk to our doctors about doing is ask the patient, what was it about your illness that made you come to the emergency department today? Now, for some of them, it'll be, well, I couldn't get a GP appointment or it's late at night, or do you know what, I live around the corner, or actually I've read in the newspaper just how amazing your emergency department is and the fact that you've got consultants here all the time, so I thought I'd pop in because you're really amazing. Now, they are all good reasons for a patient to think about going to an emergency department, but some of them will say, do you know what, I don't feel well, I'm frightened, and I'm scared. So ask that question early, and that will give you a hint. Always have the radar out there for these patients who could be brewing something underneath And always, if you need to, regardless of your grade, ask somebody else to have a look at the patient with you. There is very few times when two heads are not better than one. I had it just last night on a shift. I was talking to a patient. I wasn't quite sure what I thought I was going to do. I was working with another consultant and I asked her for her advice about what to do. We agreed on a plan and we moved forward. So have the radar out there, be aware of your own biases and don't be afraid to ask somebody else what they would do. Okay, so you're talking about the spidey sense, the gestalt, the the clinical acumen, the clinical judgment approach to these patients. And I think that's true. I think you can use those things. And I know exactly what you mean. I know the type of patient who just doesn't look well. But there are some objective things that we can use as well. And there's a number of systems around there that are in place. Many people will be familiar with them. So the one which is most commonly used in the UK and which is probably in the guidelines at the moment is the SERS criteria. And I'm sure everybody knows the SERS criteria. All our medical students know it. But, you know, body temperature, heart rate, tachypnea and white count, which you won't have when the patient first arrives. But you can use those to identify a group of patients who have really got, well, it's an inflammatory response, isn't it, Ian? And that, that is part of its problem. It can be associated with sepsis, but if you go out for a run, how many SERS criteria are you going to get? Exactly. The SERS criteria are the body's response to stress, whether that's self-inflicted stress, which for me would be going for a run, or whether it is some sort of infection or other catastrophe that's happening within the body. So SERS in itself is a useful measure of this patient is having stress for some reason, their body is struggling. But you do need more to then take that onto the idea that it's sepsis. And I think that's, again, a point that you need to go and speak to the patient and assess them, because 
you and your man flu will probably be serous positive as well, but you shouldn't be getting tazacin. A good going tonsillitis could give you that. And again, you shouldn't be having tazacin and, and lactates and central lines put in. That would be insane. You've got to engage brain when you see these people. Of late, there's been some new studies that have come out and we may see changes over the next year, I suppose, with other scoring systems which are around to look at sepsis, which are a little bit more specific, not as sensitive. So the one that's come out most recently is something called QSOFA, which is a combination of hypotension, altered mental state and tachypnea. So blood pressure less than 100 systolic, GCS less than th- or equal to 13, or a tachypnea is 22 or above. The, the jury's out on this one at the moment, but it does look as if that might be a little bit more specific. To me, I quite, I'm going to be fairly comfortable at the moment with both of these working. I'm quite happy to be called to asked to go and have a look at anybody who serves positive, engage my brain and decide. But then if they're scoring on these Q-sofas, so somebody's hypotensive with a low GCS, I'm going to be really worried about them. So I see the SERS as a nice sensitive screen. The Q-sofa appears to be a more specific thing that you should really get worried about. The other thing which is interesting, I think, at the moment is around lactate. Now, lactate has certainly been something which has been in the sepsis 6 it certainly comes something that which people have suggested you should measure for anybody who's SERS positive. And I think that will be the case in the UK at the moment. Interestingly, international consensus about the new definitions of sepsis attached to QSOFA didn't find lactate that useful. And I'm not sure about that. I still think that lactate will be a good test in the ED. So if you've got access to venous blood gases, take one. If it's abnormal, again, engage your brain. Go and discuss it with somebody else and have a good think. Anybody with a lactate above two, I think, should have a really good think about why that is. There could be reasonable reasons, such as alcohol use, but you have to think very carefully. Venous blood gases are undoubtedly perhaps now the most valuable blood test that we have in the emergency department. Remember that we've moved right away from arterial blood gases, not least because they really, really hurt, but they don't add much, especially in these metabolic situations where we're looking at a body under stress. So the lactate is a really good measure of just how the body's responding to that stress. So if you're an elite athlete, then lactate is used as a measure of your recovery time after doing the exercise that you're doing. Because the body under stress produces lactate and your ability to deal with that is measured as part of a normal training program. This is what we're doing with septic patients is we're looking at them under stress and we're trying to look at their recovery period. So lactate, again, is a good way of looking at whether the patient is recovering in the same way an elite athlete gets over acute stress from their exercise. I think the recent papers have moved away from it just because not everybody is as lucky as we are. Not everybody has a lactate available to them at the bedside. They may not even have it in their lab. So I think from a global perspective, that's why lactate isn't being as endorsed as it is. But for us, a really valuable tool. And just like any test, it has false positives, it has false negatives. You can have significant sepsis and a normal lactate. You can have a high lactate and not be septic. The bottom line with all of these things is engage your brain to think carefully and interpret the results in light of how the patient looks and the rest of your assessments. Anybody who comes along and says that this one blood test or this one physical sign is going to tell you whether something is or isn't sepsis or isn't bronchopneumonia or biliary sepsis or whatever. Don't believe those people. So let's just recap. What we're saying is when a patient comes in, we need to have a high suspicion that they may have an infective process going on. We need to search for the source of that infection and ask simple questions to find out where that might be. And patients usually are very simple about these things. A respiratory tract infection, they've got a cough and maybe some pain when they breathe and they've got a fever. Urinary tract infection, burning pain when they pee. They're rushing to the loo the whole time. So we go back and we focus on where the source might be. Sepsis, as we've described it, is this body's response to the localized infection. 
So those bacteria are now swarming around the body, causing this dysregulated response. And we need to get in there early to try and stop that causing more problems. So we get the patient into the recess room. We start these easy interventions, oxygen, fluids. We consider which antibiotic is that we're going to give. And we're thoughtful about that. We can take a few minutes to decide which one is the best one for that patient. We're identifying a group of patients who we need to do these interventions on. It's a bit tricky to decide then what's going to happen to these patients because i'm sure you find the same ian that you'll identify a group of patients who have sepsis who might be quite unwell when they first arrive same as we talked about with the paramedics really but with some early interventions so some fluids getting antibiotics in giving some oxygen so they've had a liter liter and a half of fluid they can actually look a lot better and in the period of time even within the emergency department you can normalize a lot of the physiology in these patients such that they're fit to go to the ward but there's also a group of patients who are either very very unwell when they arrive or who don't respond to treatment who really should be pushing in the direction of high dependency or intensive care it's worth thinking about which patients you would push in that direction so for me it's for patients who've got altered mental state, who are remain hypotensive after fluid resuscitation. So if you've given somebody two litres and they're still hypotensive, they're almost certainly going to require admission to the H HD or ICU. Similarly, if they're, the rest of their physiology is not recovering, if they have high lactates which are not recovering, if they're acidemic, all of these things would imply that they're going to head towards HD or ICU. And I think we should be making those conversations relatively early. I worry in the past that we used to sort of do crazy things like give people five litres of fluid and then phone ICU. And that's too far down the line. These patients will declare themselves relatively early about what they need. First of all, almost none of them are going to go home. So you can start making plans with your inpatient teams. And this is all about working together. These are not emergency department patients. They are your hospital's patients. So work as a team together. Involve your colleagues early. Yes, they may be busy, but they need to know about these patients. And as all of the sepsis groups will tell you, this is a condition that's associated with a relatively high mortality. You could argue perhaps even higher than major trauma. And look at all the effort we put into that. So get your colleagues involved early and start the treatment and planning the onward course as soon as you can. So I think the generic approach to septic patients is actually relatively straightforward. You shouldn't have too many problems delivering this in the standard UK emergency department. You need to have a little think about mimics. So you need to have a think about what other conditions may bring a patient into your ED and fool you into thinking it's sepsis and actually it's not. And again, it's a long list, but things like PE, myocardial infarction, viral infections, all of these things can mimic a sepsis. So even when you've made a decision that this is my treatment plan for now, there's nothing wrong with going back, reviewing the investigations as they come back, thinking again, getting a second opinion, and always keep in mind that things change and you need to reappraise the decision about where the patient's going, who's going to be looking after them, which antibiotics they're going to get, what the likely source is on a regular basis. And certainly I would say at least hourly whilst the patient's in the ED. Now, our aim on St. Emlyn's is really to make things simple, but it's not always that straightforward. And there are clearly very bright people around the world working very hard to work out exactly what sepsis is and exactly what it is that we can do to treat these patients as well as we can. And hugely encourage you to go off and listen to the excellent podcasts from MCRIT. Foamcast have done a really superb podcast updating on the new things that have come out very recently. Do as much reading as you can. But when that's all said and done, distill it down to the simple things. And we've always said for an emergency department patient, make sure they have enough oxygen, make sure they have some fluids if they need them and get them the right antibiotic at the right time and take their pain away with some analgesia if they have pain. 
One small point I think we should mention about this group is we're talking about adults here. Assessment of sepsis in children, particularly small children, is a completely different kettle of fish. Although the principles are the same about identifying early, giving early therapy and looking for trends, if you're thinking in the paediatric department, you do need a slightly different mindset, which we're not going to go into here. So to round things up, sepsis have a high index of suspicion. Remember that if the patient looks sick, they probably are, but that simple interventions are really going to help. We can monitor the progress and we need to involve our colleagues to make sure that we get the patient the right treatment as they work through getting through their illness. But with the prompt and effective treatment, this is a group of patients who we can really help and make a difference to in our emergency departments. So on your next shift, have a look out for patients who are presenting with signs which are compatible with sepsis. Have a think about whether they meet SERS criteria. Have a think about whether they meet QSOFA criteria. Think about how you're going to get an early intervention in that group of patients. And my strong advice, the best thing, my biggest take home message from this is on your next shift, you see a septic patient, go back a few days later, find out what happened to them. Find out what happened to that patient who went to HD or ICU. Find out what happened to that patient who went to the ward and just see how your interventions in the ED can make a real difference to that patient's prognosis and care. As ever, it's a real joy to talk to you on the St. Eminence podcast, and we hope you found this useful. There'll be an accompanying blog post to go with this podcast and please put down your comments and experiences so that we can share them with the wider world. But good luck in your emergency medicine. Enjoy it and keep making a difference.